every Sunday morning, you hit snooze. Once, maybe twice. You blow dry, you button down, you buckle up. You squeeze into your Sunday best. You keep your hands and feet and neckties in the car at all times. You come early. You run late. You sing. You listen. You preach. You pray. And then you go. And wherever you are led to go, wherever you dream of going, we are there. We are the North American Mission Board with tools, with training, with two different pathways. We connect you and your church to your next missional opportunity. When you want to welcome a refugee who's lonely, when you want to rescue a teenager who's trafficked, or feed a man who's hungry, when you want to care for a child who's neglected, or rebuild a home that's flooded, Send Relief gives you and your church real-life opportunities to learn and do in places where churches are not, where the population is big, but the gospel influence is small, where missionaries are called to start something from nothing. Send Network gives resources and training and support. And Send Network connects your church with church planners so that together you can change the world. There are thousands of them. Church planning missionaries, send relief missionaries, in big cities and small towns, feeding and teaching and loving, planning 25 churches every single Sunday and baptizing thousands of new believers every single year. They give their lives and you give your treasure. You send these missionaries out into the world when you and your church sacrificially give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering and the cooperative program. And there are thousands more chaplains in foxholes and police cars and hospitals and workplaces. They all need you. And you need them. Because outside the four walls of your church, where they are, that's where you are at your best. Every believer really can one day live on mission. You and your church just need the very best tools to make it happen. That's why we exist. That's why we create resources like the three circles. Because whether it's an evangelism tool you download to your phone, or a compassion ministry our Send Relief experts help you launch, or a new church you help start through the Send Network, everything we do is centered on helping you and your church share the gospel. That's why we all do what we do every Sunday morning and every day after that. So as you pray, as you go, and as you discover what living on mission looks like in your world, the North American Mission Board is here for you. Again, one of the great privileges we have to partner through the Southern Baptist Convention is to partner with the North American Mission Board, which helps us to spread the gospel across North America. 260 million people right now in our country that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet God has mobilized 
us as the Southern Baptist Convention to be able to reach that, that world, that part of our world with the gospel. I hope you heard in there a second ago, every Sunday, 25 new churches are planted through the Southern Baptist Convention every single Sunday morning of the year. That's an incredible feat, an incredible task that 25 life-giving, gospel-proclaiming churches were started today on average. And all that has helped because of your giving through not only the cooperative program, but also through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering and through your harvest offering. So if you give through the harvest offering, we thank you for that. And we will take those and, and, and send a portion of that through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. But if you have not had the opportunity to give through the harvest offering or God has laid it upon your heart to support the North American Mission Board financially, there are envelopes that are in the pew racks in front of you for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering if you want to place a gift in there this Easter season, and we will add that to what we will be giving later on this year. I want to read for you a passage of Scripture before we look at our text this morning as we talk about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you've got a copy of God's Word today, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23 as we as we look this morning at one of the most beautiful, poignant, and awe-inspiring passages in God's Word. And as we begin this Passion Week, I want us to read and meditate this morning on the cross and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to start a two-part series called Redeemed, and we're going to talk specifically about the cross and the agency of, of our redemption purchased through the cross of the Lord Jesus today. We're going to focus on the two primary agencies that God has used to secure our spiritual redemption, the cross and the empty tomb. Now when we talk about the doctrine of redemption, we need to understand that the doctrine of redemption is the central thread that runs through the entire Bible. Most people are confused really about what the purpose of the Bible is. Many of us have multiple copies of God's Word. We have God's Word available on our electronic devices. Many of us read God's Word from time to time. But even in the pews, most people are, are very confused about what the purpose of the Bible is. And while the Bible does have a lot of instruction in it about the kind of life that God desires from us, the Bible is not primarily a book given for our religious instruction. The Bible is not a religious how-to book designed to teach us how to please God. The Bible is not an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts. And it is not a religious history book designed to give us the story of the Jews and the founding of the Christian church. The Bible is a book of 66 individual books written by 40 different authors over the span of thousands of years designed to show us one grand story. And that is the story of redemption. 
That's the purpose of the Bible. It's a story of what a holy, sovereign God has done in order to redeem from fallen, sinful mankind a people belonging to Himself called the church. And the reason why we gather here today as the church is is not just to receive religious instruction, but the reason why we gather here is we gather as the redeemed people of God to worship our sovereign King and our spiritual Deliverer. That's why we gather as the church. That's why we sing songs about the cross. That's why we sing a a rather twisted song about the wonderful cross, a a piece of wood that was used to execute people, and yet we look at that, and, and what the world sees as foolishness, we see as the only hope for our salvation. And so as we enter into the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday... I want to encourage you as followers of Jesus Christ that our focus this week should not be on cleaning up our act and finding new clothes to dress up in and gather with our family uh, for our religious traditions. And there's nothing wrong with all those things. But the primary focus of this week is not those things. The primary focus of this week is as redeemed people to reflect on what God has done in Christ to secure our spiritual redemption. That's the focus of this week. And so with that in mind, before we read God's Word this morning, I want to define for us what we mean by redemption. When we talk about redemption, what does that mean? It's a a biblical word that many of us in the church have heard. But how do we articulate that? When we say redeem, what do we mean? Well, according to the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, redemption means to loose something from a bond, to release something from bondage, to set free from captivity or slavery to buy back something that was lost or sold, to exchange something in in one's possession for something possessed by another, or to pay a ransom. The word redeem is used in all of these contexts throughout the Scriptures. And so when we talk about redemption, this is what we're talking about, to, to set free a captive, to loose something from bondage, to buy back something with a, with a price, with a ransom. Redemption was often used in the New Testament times to describe the process when someone purchased the freedom of one who had been previously enslaved as a servant to somebody else. And that slave's freedom was bought with an extravagant price and then that slave was freed by his or her new master. And this is the picture of our salvation. This is what we mean when we talk about redemption. That the Bible declares for us that that as human beings you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that we are enslaved to sin as a master, separated from God because of our sinful choices. Yet God, in His love and His mercy, buys back our freedom at the price of His Son. And that our God sent His Son to die in our place, to pay our spiritual ransom, and to set us free from sin and death. And this is what we mean when we talk about being redeemed. And this is what we celebrate this week. We're here to talk about redemption. Redemption was the plan of God from the beginning, from that moment when Adam and Eve rejected the authority of God and ate the fruit of that forbidden tree. Everything in the Bible, from the calling of of a great nation through Abraham to the deliverance of God's people through Moses to the Babylonian captivity because of the sins of Israel and their gracious return, all of these stories were given to us to point us forward to a time when God would fully freely and finally deliver mankind from its enslavement to our sinful nature. 
Now, before we read our text in Luke chapter 23 this morning, I want you to see this verse on the screen because this tells us about the plan of God for redemption in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, in the plan of God, when the fullness of time had come, when God was ready, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see that? When the fullness of time had come, when God's plan was perfectly to be executed, God sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem you and me. And the first primary agency that God would use to secure our redemption is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was through the death of the Son of God that God would pay the price for our sin. It was through the death of His Son that He would buy us back from the Master which had enslaved us. It was through the death of His Son that He would ransom us. And so before we talk about the personal implications of the cross for you and me this morning, I want us to read over Luke's account of the crucifixion in Luke chapter 23. And as we read this, I want you to feel the weight of the glory of redemption in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the length of this text, I'm not going to ask you to stand this morning, but I do want you to read along with me in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. The Bible says, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it. Pages are stuck. <laughs> to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him saying, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him and saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds... But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all of the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that through the foolishness of preaching today, you would save those who would believe. And I pray that the message of the cross, while it is a a foolish message to the world in which we live, would pierce our hearts this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This coming Friday is what we in the church call Good Friday because it's a remembrance of the celebration of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This Friday, we will have the church open for a time of personal reflection and prayer from about 10 o'clock in the morning till about 7 o'clock in the evening for you to be able to come at at a time that's convenient for you. There'll be several prayer stations that are set up with, with some cards on them that will direct you to some passages of Scripture and some things to pray for. And, and we invite you to take some time this week, this Friday, to come and pray. If you can't come, take some time at your own home or, or maybe in your own private quiet time just to read over some Scriptures and to reflect upon what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. And so as we prepare for Good Friday and as we prepare for the remembrance of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to talk to you today about five incredibly important declarations that the cross of Jesus Christ makes in your life and mine. Five declarations that we can read based upon what we just read in Scripture. We can say with certainty these five things. The first of those is this, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my war with God is over. My war with God is over. This first truth is extremely important for us to consider because I believe that most people in the church and the vast majority of people in the world do not really realize the gravity of our personal sin before God. I believe that most of the church attenders would never in their, in their minds define sinners as enemies of God. We live in a world and we live in our time where where we want to talk about how every person, because they're created in the image of God and because they're loved supremely by a benevolent God, that that all of us are God's children. And and it seems offensive, it seems almost, almost cruel to say that those who are apart from Jesus Christ in their sin are enemies of God, yet that is exactly what the Bible tells us. Look at this scripture in Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Bible says in that while we were enemies of God, God saw fit to reconcile us to Himself through the death of His Son. In other words, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my war with God and your war with God is over. Because you see, by its very nature, sin is a rejection of God's rightful and sovereign rule in our lives. Sin is not just a personal mistake. Sin is an act of rebellion and warfare. 
It is saying to God that you and I have the right to rule our lives by whatever choices we want to make, even though God in His Word has defined for us what is right. To reject what God defines in order to pursue what we want is not just an exercise of the freedom of our will. It is a treasonous act of rebellion against the sovereign king of the universe. And we need to understand the weight of that because when we make light of sin, we don't understand what happened with Jesus on the cross. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so, Paul says. The person who lives apart from Christ has a mind that is hostile to God's authority. And they live as enemies of God. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that if you have ever surrendered your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, that you are not just a person exercising your personal freedom, you are a willing enemy combatant in a global spiritual war. And by your own choices, you have placed yourself in authority over God in your life And you are bearing the consequences of those choices. But the glory of the gospel tells us that the cross of Jesus was the instrument whereby the righteous wrath of God against your sin and my sin was poured out. The Bible tells us that God treated His own Son as an enemy combatant in our place so that by His grace He can fully accept and forgive those who have lived their lives at war with Him if we will willingly lay down our arms and surrender. See, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my war with God is over. My my war to fight for my own sovereign and independence is over because He has sent His Son to die for me, a traitor in His place. I love the hymn that we sometimes sing called All I Have is Christ. One of my favorite verses in that hymn says this, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. And the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you look upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah, church. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my war with God is over. But not only that, the second declaration of the cross tells us this, that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my sin debt is paid in full. Let me say that again because I don't think you really heard that. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my sin debt is paid in full. You see, the Bible tells us that sin is not just a personal choice, but that it is a willful act that comes with a price. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is death. Because you see, sin and sinful choices are not just morally neutral. 
Sinful choices accrue a debt against the one to whom we have sinned. And sin enacts a price which must be paid. Every sin enacts a price which must be paid. We instinctively know this because whenever someone does something wrong against us, we will usually respond by saying something like, oh, I'll get them back, right? Or they owe me big time for that. Because we understand instinctively that when somebody does something wrong to us, that, that, that's a debt, that's a price that must be paid. And the spiritual problem that we have is not just that our sin cost us some sort of relational equity with God. Instead, because God is completely holy and set apart from sin, our sin doesn't just cost us relational equity, it comes with deadly consequences. And every time you and I sin, we accrue a debt and the debt continues to build. You think the, you think the debt of the economy right now is bad? It's nothing compared to the debt that you and I owe to God. And through our personal choices, we accrue a spiritual debt with God that we cannot pay. And the Bible tells us that the only acceptable price for sin is death and separation from God. But the good news of the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ has absorbed our spiritual debt upon Himself on Calvary. The Bible says that Jesus died a death that was reserved to pay our sin debt. And that in that moment, He was fully separated from God when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And because Christ has fully paid the price for our sin, our debt is marked as paid in full. Look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It doesn't mean that our trespasses and sins are not real, but they have been forgiven. Look at Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. The Bible says that you and I carry throughout our life this exhaustive list of debt that we owe God for all of the sinful choices that we've made. But when we come to God in Jesus Christ, Christian, your sin debt is paid in full. The Bible says that God takes that record of wrongs and He nails it to the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, every single sin that you and I have committed, the price has been paid in full and our sin has been forgiven. And that because of Christ, you are not only forgiven, you are freely and fully forgiven. There is no more sin in you to punish. I think many of us would, would do well to, to commit to our life, Romans 8, 1, that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are not a Christian... That sin record still stands against you. And I would offer to you that Christ Jesus died to pay your sin debt too. If you will simply surrender your life to Him and repent. 
of your sin. The third declaration that the cross declares for you and me is that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my bondage to sin is broken. My bondage to sin is broken. You see, sin is not just a matter of exercising the freedom of our personal choice. Sin is a matter of following what controls our heart. Let me say that again. Sin is not just a matter of exercising the freedom of our will. Sin is a matter of following what controls our heart. The Bible tells us that since Adam and Eve, every person born into this world is born with an inherent nature that is bent towards sin and the rejection of God's authority. Every single person. You see, we aren't sinners because we occasionally sin. We sin because sin is the reigning reality that controls our heart. The Bible doesn't declare us sinners because occasionally we're good people that make mistakes. The Bible declares us sinners because sin in our life is the reigning reality. It controls our heart. You see this from the time we are young because children will inherently take something from another child simply because they want it, right? Or they will steal and lie to cover up their choices. You ever caught a four-year-old, five-year-old child doing something they shouldn't? You ask them about it and you say, did you do this? No. And you know good and well they did it. Did you have to sit down with them and teach them how to lie? Now, when someone tells you that you did something and you really didn't want to do it, if you want to get away and not get in trouble, you tell them that you didn't. That's called lying. You don't have to teach a child how to lie. You don't have to teach a child how to be selfish and take something that they want. That is inherent within them. Because they are born with a sinful nature. And you and I are are that way from birth. Our hearts are naturally wired to reject all authority except its own. And the problem is this. That sin, again, is not just a matter of, of exercising free personal choices. But sin creates bondage and enslavement. Sin, by its very nature, shackles us to enslavement and to itself. We sin because our hearts are shackled to a sin nature that wants our way all the time, even if it's not God's way. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verse 34, when He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see that? Everyone who practices sin, everyone who makes a practice of their life to continually follow sinful choices does so because they are enslaved to their sinful nature. And here's the, here's the deal. You and I cannot change our sinful heart through better behavioral management. You and I cannot change our sinful heart by adopting religious practices. You and I can't change what's inherently wrong with us by putting on good clothes and coming to church and acting religious. Because the problem is that our hearts are still enslaved to sin. And the only thing that can break sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what redemption is all about. It's about freeing the slave from bondage. Romans 6, 6-7 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The Bible tells us that you and I, when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that when Jesus died on the cross, He died in our place. That's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. 
And when Jesus died that death, he died that death for us. And then when we come by faith in Jesus Christ, we are placed on that cross with Jesus and we die through the death of Jesus Christ. Why? So that the enslavement, the bondage to sin in our life can be broken because one who has died has been set free from the curse of sin. Christian, I have very, very good news for you today. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, when Jesus died on the cross, He died to free you from your bondage to sin. And Christian, you are free. The Bible says that the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that sin is no longer the reigning reality of your heart and life, but Jesus Christ is. This is why when we sing the the modern version of the hymn, Amazing Grace, we sing, My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns unending love, amazing grace. Christian, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, your bondage to sin has been broken. Sin is no longer the reigning reality of your life, but pursuing Jesus Christ is. But if you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're still enslaved to your sin and you still pursue your sinful choices because that's the reigning reality of your heart. But fourthly, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my salvation is completely secure. Now I love this. Because one of the most beautiful implications of the cross of Jesus Christ is that it stands as a yearly reminder to us that forgiveness, salvation, and freedom are completely won and completely secure because the Son of God has won them fully and completely. Look at this verse from the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9. It says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Christ entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What does that mean? That means that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, your salvation, Christian, is completely secure. What is the writer of Hebrews talking about here? Well, this is where our understanding that everything in the Bible, including the Old Testament, points us forward to Jesus Christ. And this is where our understanding of the Old Testament comes into place to help us understand what Christ has done for us. You see, in the Old Testament, God instituted a plan for the sins of the people of God to be forgiven. Once a year, the people would bring a lamb to the temple to be sacrificed for their sins. An innocent, spotless lamb would be brought by that family, raised in that home, brought to the temple for that purpose. That lamb would be slain, and the blood of that innocent animal that had committed none of those sins would be poured out on the altar, and the death of that animal would purchase a forgiveness for the sins of the people. But the problem was that that forgiveness was only temporary. It could only forgive the sins of the people up to that point. It couldn't forgive sins in the future. It would only cover the sins that were committed in the past year. And so each year, a new lamb would have to be brought to the temple, and the process would be repeated again and again and again, year after year after year. And so the Old Testament people of God had to constantly come back to God for more forgiveness because the blood of earthly lambs only buys a temporary reprieve. But what the Hebrews writer tells us here is that because Jesus Christ 
is the perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God. He is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that the salvation that Jesus Christ secures is not just a temporary reprieve, but an eternally new reigning reality. The writer says that he is a greater high priest, a perfect high priest, who enters in by way of a more perfect sacrifice by his own life. And that Jesus Christ doesn't just offer up the temporary blood of an animal. He offers up the blood of His own sinless life. So that the redemption that Jesus Christ secures is not just temporal, it is eternal. So what does this mean for the Christian? It means that when we come in here to worship God, we do not come in here to worship hoping that we've done enough for God to be pleased with us for a little while. Instead, we come into this place fully saved, eternally forgiven. And we don't come to offer up a a, a sacrifice to God to absolve us from our sins. We come to celebrate the perfect sacrifice that God has offered up on our behalf. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my salvation is completely secure. There's nothing I can do today that will make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do today that will make God love me less. And that's good news. But then fifthly and finally, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my life is fueled by God's grace. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because of redemption, my life is fueled by God's grace. You see, the new reigning reality of our life is not sin, but it's grace. Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. That grace is the air that we breathe as followers of Christ. That we are not saved by our religious works and we are not saved by our personal moral perfections. We are saved completely by the grace of God. This is why we sing the hymn, Grace, Grace, God's Grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, Grace, God's Grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Because the grace of God on the cross has fully appeased God's wrath against my sin. And because it has fully purchased my redemption and fully forgiven me of my sin debt, then my life is now to be fueled by the very grace of God as I am completely surrendered to Him. Look at this verse from Titus chapter 2. It says, The grace of God has appeared. How has the grace of God appeared? It's appeared in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bringing salvation for all people. And this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. What does that mean? That means that grace is the new reigning reality of my life. The grace of God has appeared in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, if I want to learn how to, how to live self-controlled and upright and godly, if I want to live a life that is, that, is, that is detached from sin, if I want to live a life to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, I don't do so by trying to keep the law in my own strength. I do so by understanding the grace of God and that I live in the reigning reality of grace. And it's the grace of God. It's as I look upon the the cross upon which my Savior died that I'm now motivated to live a life for Him. 
You see, the church is not only just a group of religious people. It is a people who are marked by the amazing grace of God. And it's the reality of grace and looking to the cross of Jesus to see what He has done for us that fuels us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I would encourage you as you come to church this morning that you should not come here in some sort of religiously works-based attempt to earn the favor of God. You don't come here today in order to earn the pleasure of God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you come to church today as a grace-fueled son and daughter of the King who wants to worship your Savior for what He has done for you. That's the power of grace. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, grace is the fuel for the Christian life. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my war with God is over. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, my sin debt is paid in full. My bondage to sin is broken. My salvation is completely secure. And my life is one to be fueled by grace. But you see, if you don't live in the arena of grace, it's probably because you've never trusted or understood how amazing the grace of God really is. But I want to invite you this morning, if you've never trusted in the grace of God, I want to invite you this morning to take a trip with me. To take a trip on a hill far away where stands an old rugged cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And there as you look to that cross, as you look to what we read just a second ago in Luke chapter 23, I want you to understand that you could have come in here this morning shackled to your sin completely lost and hopeless, without God and without hope in this world, bearing the full wrath of God against your sin. But Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive you and release you of that. If all you will do is surrender your heart and life to Him. Today we want to offer you an opportunity to respond to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. In just a moment we're going to sing a, a song of response and a song of invitation. And if you've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never experienced the release of the bondage of your sin, if you've never understood the weight and the glory of forgiveness, you can do that today. In just a moment as we sing, we want to give you the opportunity to come and just say, Pastor Matt, I need to get saved. I've been, I've been spending all of my life on a religious pinwheel trying to earn the, the grace of God and and now I just want to trust in what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And so in just a moment, we're going to offer you an opportunity to do that. You can come and talk to me and talk to one of our decision counselors, and they'll share with you how you can leave here today a son and daughter of the King. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that on the cross, our redemption was purchased. That we were purchased in order to be set free that you bought us back with, a, with an extravagant ransom. And so, Father, I pray today that that, would, that that would pierce our hearts today. And that, Father, you would save those today who need to believe in you, that you would give them the faith to believe and you would give them the courage to respond. So, Father, save those who need to hear this morning. And for those of us who are Christians, who are followers of you, may, may the, the very breath of our lives this week be lived in the reigning reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And may we remember that our war with God is over. Our sin debt is paid in full. Our, our bondage is broken. Our salvation is secured. And our lives are fueled by grace. God, may we live this way this week. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing and respond as the Lord Jesus Christ calls you today.